Hi, I'm Allison Kulo. Hi, I'm Roger Goldman. Welcome to Mountain Money. In only a decade, the BRICS Group, which includes the countries of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, has achieved policy coordination among five very disparate countries and has started presenting a serious challenge to the status quo in global governance. Dr. Mihaela Papa is a senior fellow at the Fletcher School at Tufts University, where she has co-founded and led the Rising Power Alliances Project and served as faculty in sustainable development and global governance. She is an expert in the negotiation strategy and coalition building with a focus on BRICS and the transition to sustainability. Mihaela joins us today to help us understand more about the connections and perspectives of the BRICS nations. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be with you. You are a co-founder of the Fletcher School Rising Power Alliances. How did this project begin and why was it important to look at the alliances and coalitions in global governance? Thank you. That's a, that's a very important question because when we started the project, there was this major gap in scholarship and policy debates because everybody was focused on the rise of China. What is the implication of the rise of China? What is the implication of Russia's renewed ambitions? But to actually really change the international system, you need a critical mass of states or you need a coalition that can ex exert pressure for change and that it that can be actually capable of doing that over time. So it needs to also be resilient. And uh, BRICS in a way was a natural coalition to look at because of its weight in the sense, political sense, economic sense. So for, right now they have 41% of the world's population, a third of global GDP nearly, and 16% um, of global trade. So when you think about change in international system and if they actually manage to work together uh, as one, uh, then uh, there are new opportunities for reform. And uh, we had the opportunity to work with under the Minerva Research Initiative federal grant and form a research team and look at BRICS cooperation and actually study uh, where they are strong, where they are weak, and how they relate to the U.S. goals and interests. So when you list those countries, it doesn't you know, naturally spring to mind that that would be an alliance and that they would have sort of common goals. What is pulling these countries together? So there are several things going on. Um, so first of all, uh, they started meeting as BRIC, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly. And that was between 2006, 2008. And then in 2009, they became an independent group under Russia's leadership. And Russia championed uh, them to actually work together as as independent as as a grouping rather than a coalition on the sideline of of regular negotiations um and then in 20 2010 south africa joined the group but when we are looking at what what keeps them what holds them together uh, the big idea for them was uh, that they got together uh, in light of uh, global financial crisis and uh, in light of their uh, efforts to change economic and financial infrastructure because the argument is if they are now having more economic power then they need to have more representation and greater weight in the existing international financial institutions but it's also like more than that that uh, the, there is this larger notion of multipolarity, having uh, global leadership diversified and having more powers be in the leadership position. And that 
ideas of multipolarity have been there for like 20 years. So starting from China and Russia's coordination on how to achieve a multipolar world order since 1997. And then there was also India, Brazil and South Africa work together to increase their voices in the global system since 2003. So, so basically BRICS is in a way like a Lego, like a building block of different <laughs> ideas. <laughs> like, yeah. So, uh, and then they kept growing. And then uh, right, right now, when we think about what binds them together, they established uh, this new development bank uh, in hope of pursuing more infrastructure development, uh, coordinating their development uh, agencies and thinking about how to basically uh, create uh, more uh, cooperation in the space of industrial development and also sustainable development. And then on, at the same time, they started the contingent reserve arrangement to help them with short-term balance of payments pressures. But also uh, there is much broader cooperation around agriculture, like different areas, trade, climate. So, so it's like... Uh, a huge technical cooperation encompassing very many different issue areas. At, at base, is this really trying to form a significant challenge to sort of the U.S. dominated post-World War II financial system that, that, that binds the world together? Are they really saying we want an alternative and we're going to be it? So they're saying two things. One thing they're saying uh, is that it's not okay that one power is dominant. So in a way they are saying we don't want a system where we have one dominant power. But then they are also saying like we depend on the current system so we do want diversification. But in some areas diversification when it's not feasible they are looking for alternatives. And those who are looking for alternatives are usually those who are having hard time like getting <laughs> mm -hmm. access to the to the current system. So, I mean, giving you an example, like, for example, uh, Russia is under a lot of pressure with sanctions. So you have naturally Russia being like the front runner in saying like, we need a completely alternative system. We need a BRICS currency. We need not to be dependent on, on the SWIFT. We don't need to be dependent on, you know, uh, uh, US dollar. So you have, uh, there, there is a larger sense of, yes, there, there is a need to diversify currencies to, to mitigate currency risk, but those who are actually under greatest pressure, like Russia, are the ones uh, often like using the narratives, we need an alternative ASAP. I want to dip in a little bit more into some of the efforts these countries are doing underneath the guise of de-dollarization initiatives. Can you talk about the efforts that they're undertaking and the infrastructure? How do you go about doing this? So very, it, it, that's one of the most difficult things because dollar is so dominant. And when we say dominant, it means like 88% of international, finance, international transactions are conducted in US dollars and the dollar is accounting for 58% of global foreign exchange reserves. So dominance, it's not like any dominance, it's like mm -hmm. super dominance. And, uh, but even when you think about like Euro is a very trusted car currency, the entire European continent uses it and, and more broadly. So you Euro is not at that level, and Euro could not like uh, de-dollarize. Mm -hmm. uh, Europeans could not de-dollarize tomorrow. So, so just to g give you a sense of the challenge. But the, the, uh, in 2009, the BRICS countries floated the idea of joint currency, and when they established their new development bank. Their goal was to use local currencies in its operations, 
but uh, low currency financing, even now, like so after a decade of their efforts, is only 22% of the bank's portfolio. And now the new president wants to increase it to 30% by 2026, which gives you a sense that even if you put your money to it and say like local currencies from now on, uh, people use dollar for a reason. Mm -hmm. And um, there is, uh, in terms of the um, currency di diversification, there was a lot of buildup, like what will happen uh, in August, last August, for the BRICS summit, because the BRICS currency was supposed to be on the agenda. But actually, where we see action, it's not at the BRICS level. We see action in, um, in uh, bilateral deals, so trying to switch bilateral trade to non-dollar currencies and especially now looking at energy trade to non-dollar currencies uh, but what is BRICS doing together and actually wants to make progress on and everybody is aligned on is that they want to have an integrated payment system for cross-border transactions so basically that they don't they can trade among each other without having to convert local currency into dollars and that would be some sort of a decentralized multi-currency digital system. And that's, that's something that they can currently agree on, but they don't have a consensus or the willingness for like some super currency where they would give up their local currencies, which they are currently hoping to internationalize. That's actually a pretty complicated thing, I would think. While they could agree on it in theory, the actual implementation strikes me as something that would be pretty tricky. Absolutely, yes. Okay, so we've sort of focused on economics, and I think that's a, an important place to start. To what extent are there also sort of military and security uh, alliance uh, potential here with this group? So they said, like, when, when BRICS was started, they immediately said, like, alliances are a thing of the past. That's like Cold War thinking. Uh, this is not an alliance. Uh, and when we think about, like, in, in international relations, when we think about an alliance, it's a formal association of states. So it needs to be a treaty. And uh, usually it's use of military for forces involved. And it needs to be against states outside membership. So they, they were very clear, we don't want to be against the third party. And we don't want to have a formal treaty. So basically, they operate, operate like a group. They don't operate like an organization. So um, th that being said, uh, they are like a strategic partnership, which means that they work on several issues at the same time. And security is one of the issues they work on. Uh, we don't see an alliance or alliance building. What we see is that there is a lot of like security cooperation in terms of security ministers getting together uh, and so on, but uh, not like something like integrated military command. That would be like what, what an alliance would be. Uh, two areas are uh, security council reform, which uh, India, Brazil, and South Africa are pushing, and counterterrorism. And counterterrorism, there is interest of all parties to, to work on counterterrorism together. And that's especially driven by India. And a lot of work has been done like to, to launch uh, counterterrorism working groups in uh, Brazil. And let's go a little bit into Brazil, because I, I look at some of these um, members of the group, China and Russia, and I, I can imagine what some of their security concerns are. Can you talk a little bit more about Brazil and their deepening security cooperation among the BRICS members? So, uh in terms of Brazil, Brazil initially joined, it was very eager to reform global governance, so especially thinking about reforming international financial institutions. So, so the driver here was very much like finance. 
Um, when you look at Brazil uh, security strategies, what you see is that they are thinking about economic power as security power. So, so there is no clear divide between economics and security. And Brazil has always wanted to play greater role on the Security Council in security discourses. And uh, uh, some of the work that Brazil in invests in security is very much like uh, uh, in partnership with India. So uh, what you see is that even, let's say, if Brazil does not find an immediate security threat, it's so deeply engaged in cooperation on other issues that uh, it basically can draw, draw Brazil in just out of like cooperation and negotiation in terms of like uh, which packages of issues that Brazil is interested in will, will be put forward. I see that both you've got China and India as members of BRICS, but historically, hasn't there been a certain degree of antipathy and rivalry between those countries? And, and how is that dynamic affecting the BRICS relationship? So uh, this is this China-India uh, conflict has been always puzzling from the start of BRICS. How can they work together uh, when uh, China and India are in conflict? And that, but when we look at BRICS, we need to think about it as UN. Like how are how are countries in UN when they are so mm. different? So mm -hmm. so there is a way of compartmentalizing. And what we've seen, we actually had an uh, like we had a. a special issue in Global Policy Journal, where we asked every single um, BRICS country expert, like top expert on BRICS from each BRICS country to explain to us why India and China can keep <laughs> working together. And basically all of them agree that, that that's basically on, uh, from the get-go, uh, the decision was to work on issues that don't cross red lines which means that whatever is contested, you leave out. The only issues that can be discussed are those where they all agree or where they want to agree. But so that's the same like how the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that's not something that's, that's being discussed as like a, a problem for BRICS. So uh, what we've seen actually when we did that uh, experiment with all the BRICS people, uh, they derive benefits from cooperation and actually BRICS managed to de-escalate tensions. So actually BRICS enabled them to to reduce tensions to, to what they would have otherwise been. But the entire internal processes are designed just to focus on the positive and whatever issues can be agreed on or look innovative move on. Whatever's problematic stays out. Sounds like some relationships I'm familiar with. Um, <laughs> so we've talked a little bit about South Africa and its relatively new addition to BRICS. What led them to join this alliance, especially when many countries determine their alliances are due to security threats? So the, uh, I mean, South Africa is in BRICS as a strategic partnership, so it doesn't see it as an alliance. And none of them, like whoever, whichever country you ask, like they would not see it as an alliance. Mm. And it's the development focus that got South Africa in and thinking about like closer relations with China, closer relations with, uh, with Asia and thinking about economic prospects for the future. Um, also, uh, South Africa's joining in 2010 was important because BRICS was a trans-regional group and 
and Africa was missing from the equation with only Brazil, Russia, India, and China. So South Africa gave BRICS this geopolitical angle. But what we are now looking at is the new expansion that's supposed to start in January. And that new expansion would be the invi invited countries are Saudi Arabia, Iran, Ethiopia, Egypt, Argentina, and UAE. Yeah, we gotta we gotta slow that one down here. <laughs> Can you go back again? Because this is something that we'd like to understand a little bit further. So, starting in January, the BRICS nations are expanding. Yes, yes. So the BRICS summit in August uh, invited uh, six different countries to join. So in January, there will be BRICS will be bigger, and um, there were forty countries altogether. Who ex that expressed interest, 23 countries that had formal applications, and six of them got in. And there is no published criteria. And once again, who are the six? Saudi Arabia, Iran, Ethiopia, Egypt, Argentina, and the UAE, U United Arab Emirates. So, so obviously you see a lot of petro a dollar uh, or you know oil reserves coming in as, as that part of it um, doesn't that change the nature of the economic threat and by the way I'm, I'm really interested in what the new acronym is going to be with yeah. all those extra letters <laughs> but, but but the serious question is you know that that actually strikes me as a a little more ominous vis-a-vis -vis the economic threat of, of the 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 organization formerly known as BRICS I mean, they are like still known as BRICS because they cannot figure out the new acronym. <laughs> and especially now if India changes its name, right? So, so, um, but, but I think you're absolutely right. Uh, this is, uh, uh, the, the problem. So, so basically this current expansion is very much to feed the trade. Uh, agenda because uh, trade was not well developed within BRICS. They they are only a small percent of each other's trade. So uh, then, if you look at the countries they are adding, these countries are major trade partners, and a lot of these countries, if not all, expressed at one point that they want to switch to local currency, local currencies in trade. And uh, this is a this is a big agenda. So now, like the thing to watch is both uh, uh, whether trade will increase among BRICS and whether this trade will take place in local currencies. And if that is uh, managed on both fronts, then we are talking about greater uh, greater economic weight of the whole coalition. And, and isn't the very notion of having oil? de-dollarized, if you will. I mean, historically, obviously, you know, the trade in oil, as I understand it, has always been in dollars. If, if that changes, doesn't that really threaten the sort of the strength of the dollar internationally? I mean, it, it's a question uh, how many people are interested in having it changed. Because you see that, like, Saudi Arabia was not really, like, uh, uh, as eager to change do to non-dollar currencies. So... Mm -hmm. Uh, it's not it uh, what we can look at is like how fast it can go of course it can be a patchwork of different de-dollarization initiatives but at this point it's a patchwork and basically what are you changing into are you changing into like yuan or what would be the alternative currency and what would be the deal because you know if is is this uh, switching to a different currency 
only negotiation point or are you getting something mm -hmm. else like you know better terms of trade or you know so so it also depends of uh, on what is china or other countries that are switching willing to give in addition to you know uh, uh, trading in in their own currencies so we've talked about this being an alliance there's no formal treaty how has the un been addressing the brics nations so uh, there are empirical ways actually to see what's been going on. Uh, empirically, uh, if you look at voting behavior in the UN General Assembly, uh, BRICS nations, it, it's, it has been shown that they are forming uh, uh, much closer coalitions. So which means that over time their, their positions are becoming closer. They've, they vote more similarly over time. So there is a trend. And of course, I mean, one can say yes, I mean, if they are con continuously engaged in policy coordination, that will show up in the voting uh, numbers. But uh, there are also, uh, in terms of the UN, there are also uh, uh, ways that they work together as a group within specific UN agencies. So you can see, for example, um, on, on industrial development, on food and agriculture, on uh, um, trade and development. So there are specific agencies almost which you see activated and uh, which now have like a brick part of the website or a BRICS report or like their agency head goes to visit BRICS. So, so they are becoming an entity or have already become an entity across different UN agencies. But they still, it's, it's interesting, they still function obviously within the UN. Um, you know, are we going to see, has BRICS formalized to the extent that they, they have a, a headquarters and a building and sort of regular meetings? I mean, are they, 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 they going to create themselves into some kind of, you know, almost a mini EU in the sense from an economic perspective? So uh, they never got the secretariat, so they are always informal. What happens is that every year another BRICS country holds presidency and that country organizes all the events. Okay. And they are usually like 150 to like 200 events a year. And events means like there is a trade minister meeting. So trade ministers get together and talk about how to coordinate policies on trade. So uh, this this system is likely to stay unless uh, there was talk about secretariat early on in BRICS cooperation that there would be a virtual secretariat, but I don't think they got consensus to um, to basically get the funding for it. So there was talk, but I don't I don't envision like them having a real building and trying to work the EU model because there is no integration to towards supranational ambitions so that that that's just not something they could do so it needs to be a completely different new form of collaboration we've been speaking with dr Mihaela papa she is a senior fellow at the fletcher school at tufts university where she co-founded and leads the rising power alliances dr papa thank you so much for joining us this morning on mountain money thank you so much for having me mountain money will be back right after this Welcome back to Mountain Money. Utah received $500,000 to support export growth among small businesses thanks to the U.S. Small Business Administration's Competitive State Trade Expansion Program. The grant aims to enhance global success for Utah companies 
and is administered by World Trade Center Utah in partnership with the Governor's Office of Economic Opportunity. Anna Maiden is the lead for the SBA STEP grant for WTC Utah and joins us this morning to help us understand more. Anna, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Let's begin. You, you work with World Trade Center Utah. Can you just review with us what is the mission of the organization? Sure. Um, the mission of the World Trade Center Utah is to really help accelerate growth for small and medium-sized businesses in Utah. And the organization offers several programs such as global business services, investment, international programs, and specifically administrating the SBA STEP grant program. And is, it, is, is World Trade Center a governmental organization or is it an independent nonprofit? Um, it, it's both, actually. It's um, an interesting organization. Um, it's nonprofit and also um, conducts several um, services that they charge uh, charge a small fee for, depending on um, which service you're um, engaging World Trade Center Utah in. Um, specifically, this um, SBA STEP grant program is a grant program that World Trade Center Utah um, administers on behalf of the SBA. And it's an application. Uh, it's an application program. And, and how long has it been around? Can you give us a little bit of the history of the STEP program? Yeah, sure. Um, the STEP grant program um, specifically was created in 2010, and it's offered in every state of the country. And here in Utah, it's administered, um, as we said, through World Trade Center Utah, and in partnership with the Utah Governor's Office of Economic Opportunity. And um, it's been around in Utah since uh, 2006. And um, uh, the World Trade Center Utah then was founded by uh, Governor John Huntsman. And um, his focus was really to support export and investment on the global stage for uh, small and medium-sized businesses in Utah. You mentioned the STEP program. So again, it's the State Trade Expansion Program. It's been in every state. This year, Utah received $500,000 for SBA grants. Is that something that you needed to apply for and to receive, or did every state receive the same amount of money? How was that allocated? Um, yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, every state would need to apply, um, just like we did. Um, our organization um, went through a, a serious application process um, that we need to apply for. Um, we apply for a specific amount of money, and um, this year we received 500000 which is great. Not every state receives the same amount of money. Some receive more, some receive less, and not every state applies every year. Um, it just depends on um, the nature of their grant cycles and their programs and, and what's, going, what's going on in their own organization. And what, again, who will be able to access these funds and what kinds of activities will they be used for? So really, um, anyone in Utah who owns a small and medium-sized business um, can apply for funding um, through this grant program. And this is really exciting because the STEP grant program really levels the playing field of opportunity from businesses who have been in business for over a year or businesses, you know, and they're just getting started and they've got a product or a service they want to offer and export. Um, or it could be a business that has been in business for 10 or 15 years and they're at a point where they're really ready to take um, a product or service um, into a different market internationally and they're really ready to grow. And so you're eligible if um, you operate a business in Utah, uh, you can apply to the step grant here in Utah. 
and um, you're ready to export your product or service, um, you've got to be in good standing with the federal government. For example, um, you uh, are, should never have been barred from receiving any federal funds, so that's a requirement. Um, and so, uh, and you have to have a business license in Utah. So the eligibility requirements are, are pretty easy to meet and um, the application itself is, is a pretty smooth application process and we're here to support every single business um, through that process. Give us a typical example of, typical, uh, give us an example of what an application might look like. In other words, what, what might a business be seeking to get a grant for and what kinds of dollars might they be able to get? That's a good question. Um, a lot of people think, oh, you know, I don't, you know, I would never uh, be in a position to apply for a grant like that. You know, my company doesn't really do anything that, um, you know, anything like that that sounds really serious but it, it like i was saying it's really exciting because for example um one of the activities that uh, a step grant can cover are the logistics costs um, to participate in a foreign trade mission or to participate in an international trade show and world trade center utah offers these opportunities um all year long um for example uh, there's uh, an international trade show, um, it's called ISPO, um, held in Munich, Germany next month. And that show focuses on sports and outdoor and the outdoor industry. So there are plenty of companies in Utah, small, medium-sized, large-sized companies that um, have sporting equipment or uh, sport, sport clothing. And um, this covering the logistics cost of a trip to Germany is... Um, is a big deal. It allows them to then uh, drop into that market and meet a lot of distributors or future partners for their products. Um, so another uh, activity that um, the Step Grant program can cover are um, business trips. Uh, business trips that that may not be a trade show or a foreign uh, foreign trade mission, but you you know you may own a business and you may be thinking, gosh. You know, I'd really like to meet XYZ businesses in Japan. I know that, um, you know, a lot of my customers come from Japan, and I'd really like to create some partnerships there. So that might be something that you're considering as a business owner. Um, other uh, step grant funds can go towards um, globalization of your website. Maybe you've got customers that you service that are overseas or that you're selling your product or your services to, and you need to translate your website into another language. I know a lot of companies that, um, you know, that sort, those sorts of activities are really at the bottom of their list when they're doing business day to day. And um, it's something that they think about a lot. And then two years later, they go, oh, I really need to get my materials translated. Um, another activity is design of marketing materials. You know, that's another thing that people put off that um, they think, oh, you know, I can't afford to do that. If you apply for the step, uh, the step grant, then some of those funds may be used to design those materials. And it's really helpful to sort of take your business to the next level. Is it fair to say that, you know, those that are applying for the grants don't have to have those international relationships set up, that this allows them to build those relationships? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, so many people think, oh my gosh, I would love to create those relationships. Um, maybe they haven't done that yet. They haven't had an opportunity yet. So um, another example, uh, a good example of that is another um, show that we've got coming up 
that called Medica. That one is also in Germany and is being held in November. And you know, this is an this is an example where uh, it's it, um, it's one of the largest medical business-to-business trade fairs that is held in the world. And so companies from Utah that have a medical device or they have lab technology or diagnostic services, um, orthopedic technology, for example, we have a lot of companies like that in Utah. And going to a show like this really helps them get out there and start meeting other businesses or other investors or um, just creating maybe those future partnerships that can just, again, bump them into that next level of new revenue streams, um, bringing extra dollars into Utah. It's These activities in trade and export really help build and boost our local economy. So it, it is really exciting. I mean, anyone who's out there ranging from um, cottage industry products to aerospace and defense, any company um, can apply for this grant. Um, and we can help them um, get through those um, get through those questions, those initial questions, um, and help them out uh, if they want to participate. And again, a grant is is a grant. It, it's not a loan. It doesn't need to be paid back. Are there reporting procedures, or how do how are you as the granting agency able to maybe track successes of the money given? Well, that's a good question. And um, what we what we like to consider ourselves at World Trade Center Utah is is a pipeline to success, and one of those things uh, uh, ways that we can help companies through that pipeline is through that reporting process. We are really committed to the success that they experience in these certain activities, and when they get back, then we help them report their um, their ROI or their return on investment. So. You know, we may talk to them and say, hey, you know, what kind of success did you experience? And they may have the opportunity to do two more contracts or add another um, staff position here in Utah or 10. And so those are all things that we, that uh, that's all information that we um, collect from those companies and we report back to the SBA. It's really important for SBA partners to know that when they give Utah a grant like this of this size, that um, that it's successful, and we like to share those success stories. So we'll talk to companies and say, "Hey, you know, did you get any photos <laughs> while you were there? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, do you have any photos of your success or new partnership possibilities?" And we'll share those success stories with the SBA, and the SBA will share those success stories with their government partners, and and that's really exciting. You know, we've talked about sort of some of the things that a grant can be used for, like travel, like website translation. Um, my understanding is that you can also pay for things like subscriptions to services provided by the U.S. Department of Commerce. Uh, what kinds of services are those? Well, some of the services that um, the U.S. Department of Commerce provides um, are, let's say, like matchmaking services, for example. So a company can go to them and um, and they will do a lot of research um, uh, World Trade Center Utah also offers some of those services, but um, U.S. Department of Commerce will, will they, they have 70 offices around the world. And so if there's a particular company that's doing business in a specific, a specific country, um, they will help create specific meetings for them, sort of matchmaking services or, um, and set up meetings that are well-suited to companies in Utah, for example. Um, they have lead subscription services. So a lot of companies that um, 
you know, offer a number of different kinds of services uh, will are, are interested in subscription services that provide them with leads that they can follow up on. Um, so they have a lot of um, services that they offer, as well as our SBA partners um, here in Salt Lake City. Quite often when companies uh, come to us or they look at the options that a step grant can cover, maybe it doesn't quite cover something that they want to do. So we'll, re we'll refer them to our partners at U.S. Department of Commerce or the SBA right here in Salt Lake City. Um, the SBA, for example, um, would be very interested in talking to companies that have a product or a service um, and are looking to get a small business loan. And they have specific partners right here in Utah that can help those companies have that conversation. You had mentioned that the STEP program um, really had started existence in 2006. In 2010, it moved to every state. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, this isn't the first time that STEP funding had been made available in Utah. Is that correct? That's correct. And can you give us maybe some examples or, um, you know, some of those those stories of businesses that have applied and, and what they were able to do with this type of funding? Sure. I mean, over the past couple of years, we've probably seen about 120 or more Utah companies um, receive funding for the STEP grant. I should probably say that um, that uh, our particular cap for those STEP grant applications is $15,000 every grant cycle for those companies. Um, that What that means is that um, we have companies that um, experience success and they have such a great um, experience that they'll come back and they'll do another application for another amount to do a separate activity. So um, those companies have have done a number of the activities that I've just mentioned. You know, they'll they'll divide up everything they need to do. They'll they may go to a trade show um, overseas and then they um, they realize, oh my gosh, we've got these great partners and um, there's a huge demographic of customers in this country. So we need to. Um, translate our, our materials into into that language. Um, a lot, all of these all of these companies that come back and experience um, business success and new revenue streams um, translate into about nine has has translated into about ninety million dollars in new trade opportunities for the state, and that's that's huge. Um, our state is growing, our small and medium-sized businesses are growing, and there's really a lot of networking that, that takes place when you participate in the STEP grant program. Um, when you participate, you know, you're not the only one, and you feel part of a bigger group. The STEP grant is, you know, the thread of commonality amongst, you know, hundreds of, of businesses in Utah that are trying to do the same thing, and that really provides an environment of great support that World Trade Center Utah um, cultivates. Obviously, World Trade Center's mission is to, to, to do that kind of cultivation. Do you have a sense as to how important exports are to the Utah economy and, and how, you know, to what extent that, that, that uh, part of the economy has been growing over the last few years? Well, I do know that, um, you know, we have a very diverse economy. We have a very robust economy. Um, you know, we have companies that um, are in so many different sectors like agriculture, biosciences, outdoor products, clothing, dairy, um, all the way up to, you know, aerospace and defense. And, and this is huge. And so when we have leadership in our state that is interested in supporting every single one of these businesses and including small and medium-sized businesses, 
um, then that's really great news for the state. And, um, you know, you don't have to go very far to contact people who are going to support your business through a process. You know, if, if there's something that when I talk to businesses every day, if there's something that we don't do, we'll find someone that can help support you and connect you and link you to those resources in the state. Um, it's, re it's really important um, that we have good leadership, and we do. How can people find more out about this grant and as well the application process? Yes. Okay. So um, if you want to learn more about the grant, um, please go to our website. Um, anyone can go to World Trade Center Utah, WTCUtah.com, and click on grants. And um, there's a small form that you fill in on the website that you submit, and then we follow up with you and assist you with the application. It takes two to three weeks from application to award, which is great, so it's not a long process, and obviously we help you along the way. So um, we'll be in touch with you on the phone and, um, and by email, and we can chat back and forth, and we can help you determine the best activity for your company. Um, and again, we can also make referrals to your specific needs, either other departments at World Trade Center Utah that will help you identify those markets, or our partners at the SBA, in Utah, or we can refer you to our partners at the U.S. Department of Commerce, who are amazing, amazing at helping small and medium-sized businesses access these opportunities. We've been speaking with Anna Maiden. She is the lead for the SBA STEP grant for World Trade Center Utah. And Anna, thank you for joining us this morning on Mountain Money. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Mountain Money will be back right after this. Welcome back to Mountain Money. John and Paige Courtney, husband and wife business partners, have joined forces with three-time Olympic skier Devin Logan to open Park City, Utah's newest bakery and cafe, The Bake Shop, which opened at 1154 Center Drive across the street from the Courtney's Chop Shop in Kimball Junction. Joining us to talk about the new venture is John Courtney. Morning, John, and thanks for joining us. Hey, good morning. How are you? Good. John, you joined us on Mountain Money before to talk about The Chop Shop. How did the... Uh, uh, the idea of going to the next course, if you will, the dessert course, the cake shop, begin? Um, it, it was kind of uh, something symbiotic for us. We go through a lot of bread at the shop. We noticed uh, that there was a need in the area um, for uh, baked goods as well as breads and a good coffee system. So we decided to uh, dip our toes in the uh, yeast, so to speak. <laughs> so we've got Devin Logan is part of this team. Can you talk about how Devin came in and became part of this new venture you guys have? Yeah, Devin's a good friend. Um, we've met a few years back through some other friends of ours, uh, Dave and Carol, uh, up here in Park City. And so we hit it off. She went through retirement and into uh, college and graduated and really found a love for cooking in that time period. And so it was kind of a, a great meeting. Um, and now she's been in here uh, crushing bag, baguette and uh, brioche and croissant. And um, she's doing a really, really great job with us. We're really excited to be a part and that, together. And that, of course, is a natural segue into if I were, uh, and I'm, I could smell it already, if I were to walk into the shop, what would I see on the menu board? Oh, um, you'd see, you know, fresh baguette daily, brioche daily. Um, Paige, my wife, is working on 
some more Euro breads, uh, a Zuckerkuchen, which is out of Germany, which uh, translates over as sugar cake, um, but a lot lighter in uh, sweets, uh, kind of the Euro forward format where not America, where we're just throwing a bunch of sugar at you. Um, and then we have some uh, a good coffee systems, Pour Steady out of Brooklyn. Um, so each individual drip coffee, we're using the mill beans out of uh, Los Angeles. Uh, so single origin bean as well. And then we have a tap system too, where we do uh, Vietnamese iced coffee on tap. We do uh, a nitro matcha green tea on tap, uh, as well as, you know, other baked goods, cookies and that such. Do you have cakes? Um, we will. Cakes are coming. Uh, custom cakes will be done through a, a, another friend of ours that's working with us here, Waylon Lucas. Her company is Butter and Barley. She's going to be doing ice creams and custom cakes out of the bake shop as well. Okay, so the bake shop itself, um, I asked about what would I see if I walked in the, and looked at the menu. What's the atmosphere yeah. like in the cafe? What are you trying to set up there? Uh, it's nice. We have uh, uh, some live edge wood table, a uh, monkey pod. Uh, one of our customers from Chop Shop, actually, uh, Ramsey Madsen, he runs a furniture creative company, and he sourced and created that for us. Uh, we have a nice couch, you know, area to sit down with families as well. It's warm and inviting. You know, you have a nice view of uh, Kimball Junction parking lot. I was <laughs> 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 trying to, you know, <laughs> make the parking lot sound nicer. <laughs> well, you know, when you're having a good cup of coffee and a nice baguette, maybe you don't mind looking at the parking lot. Yeah, that's it. And we have baguette coming out several times a day, so you can, uh, as I say, hug your baguette on the way out just to feel the warmth. And you mentioned several times a day. How late in the afternoon are you open? Uh, right now we're open till about 3 o'clock, um, but we've stayed open as late as 4, and we've sold out as early as 2.30 already, so just depends. That's good to know. Now, you've got two businesses within the same area. Was that something that um, you were looking for as far as a location? What came first, I guess, the, the idea or the location? Um, the location came first. Um, it's 42 steps away from Chop Shop, so that proximity uh, helps Paige and I, you know, manage and operate both locations. Um, compared to, you know, having to drive across town or into another location into, you know, another part of Utah. We really like the proximity. And then, you know, again, going into now you've got two locations, you know, I, I doubt it. It's like, you know, when you have one, um, it's so much work when you have two. It, is it double the work or is it maybe <laughs> are there some economies of scale that you're now getting? to yeah. see? In this case, it's not necessarily double the work. It's just a longer work day. Baking starts at 4 a.m. versus the butcher shop didn't start till, you know, 830 in times type thing for the staff. So a little bit different you know, in the length of the day. Um, but I think once these two uh, get going together and working together side by side, it, it should should ease up a little bit. Plus, once staffing model kind of evolves, we know what we need more versus what we believe we need, you know. Um, so that should help. And then the two working side by side, you know, the bread now coming across from the bake shop. So we have brioche for our new sandwich that's the fall winter sandwich, which is our cooked here and tomato soup over at Chop Shop. Mm. Um, so that brioche is being made fresh here daily. Uh, all of our brioche buns are being made over here, too, for our chicken sandwich that we use. And then shortly, our sourdough batard will be made for us over there, too. You know, John, so that makes it a little easier. Yeah, we've been, we've been talking about the chop shop. For, for our listeners who aren't familiar with it, let's talk a little bit about yeah. how long has that been open and w w what's available yeah. there? Yeah, we're going on uh, almost three years now. 
Um, so we have a you know, small menu of sandwiches, a couple of Detroit-style pizzas that we do. The sandwiches come out of a wood-fired oven. And then it's a full-service butchery. Um, we do local lamb, local pig, and then our cow we get is from Creekstone Farms out of Kansas. Um, it's a never-never program, no hormones, no antibiotics, humanely raised and harvested. And so the shop there is open 10 to 6, Tuesday through Saturday, um, for all to come in and dine, enjoy sandwiches, and then take some meats home to cook, as well as uh, holiday season and such. We, we take care of everybody. And, and tell us about some of those sandwiches, because <laughs> I've had a few of them. They're awfully good. Oh, it's really flattering. Um, the most popular on the menu, uh, sales-wise, is the butler dip, which is our play on a French dip. Mm. It's uh, aged meat that we roast, slice up in the fire, wood-fired oven, and then it comes with caramelized onions, Swiss cheese, and um, let's put it on our house sourdough, batard. And then the other most popular one would be, would be, that's the bakery behind me, apologize. Um, the other one would be, uh, it's really popular, is our Firebird. Comes on a brioche bun. It's a fried chicken sandwich that we do. Uh, and uh, everything in-house comes with a chicharron that we make in-house too. So, John, I, you, you mentioned you've been in business three years. Talk to us about supply chain issues with respect to meats. How difficult has that been? Are you still seeing challenges? And obviously, what are you seeing in terms of pricing? Um, challenging for us, not so much. That's not a problem for us as much as um, it's been pricing-wise. Pricing has changed considerably. Um, it's starting to kind of level back out, but pandemic really change that that narrative you know when steaks three years ago uh were in the 19 to 20 dollar range some of them are up in the 30 dollar range now mm -hmm. per pound um so we've definitely seen an increase in that supply chain for us wasn't too difficult like i said we work closely with sunbow on distribution which is jeremy gines down in provo oram area and they are our source to creekstone farms out of kansas now, you had mentioned or alluded to, you know, the holidays coming up, and, and it is the first Monday yeah. in October, but I want to just at least start getting that in people's heads. What is best practice? Is the best practice to come in, have a discussion with you about what they may or may not need for larger dinners? Uh, do you, Is it best to reserve ahead of time? How does that work? Yeah, we'll start putting up, um, we do dry-aged beef for Christmas that we start in October so people can get a discount and purchase a prime rib in October for December. And then November 1, we start our, our list for Thanksgiving. We do a brined turkey that you take and bake, um, as well as some sides. And so we get that list going. And then December 1, we start the list for Christmas, too. And this year, I'm going to introduce a Wellington, beef Wellington for two. So you'll take and bake your own beef Wellington at home with a, a, an instruction list that we send home with everybody. So you can have something a little different on your table this year. I'm going to ask you to describe a beef Wellington for those who aren't familiar with it. I, I, it what is a beef Wellington? Yeah, Wellington, uh, it's a very traditional dish. Um, it does have pastry dough wrapped around. Um, <clears throat> beef tenderloin is traditional for it. Um, you rub it in a little bit of mustard, salt, pepper. You sear it, and then you cool it down, and then you make a, a duxel of mushrooms, some spinach that's dried out, and then you wrap that in a crepe. And then you wrap that crepe in your pastry dough, and then you bake it about an hour at 350 degrees. And what happens is, is your, your filet inside or tenderloin is cooked completely medium rare while your dough on the outside is completely flaky mm. you, is the, the real technique to it. 
you've you've been successful in making me very hungry at 10 a.m. Um, this morning. Can you help us uh, and share how people can find the bake shop and the chop shop online and then as well in person? Yeah, uh, chopshopparkcity.com, thebakeshoppc.com, um, and then in Kimball Junction, we're just across from each other, 1177 Center Drive or 1154 Center Drive, kind of nestled between Best Buy and Storm Cycles. You've got quite a bit going on in that corner of the neighborhood, and we appreciate the time you've spent with us. We were just speaking with John Courtney about the Bake Shop, a new uh, bakery out there in Kimball Junction. John, thanks for joining us this morning on Mountain Money. Thank you so much. Mountain Money will be back right after this. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy the show, make sure you leave a review no matter how you listen. And we'd appreciate it if you clicked five stars.